S&P 500 hits a new all-time high. You barely saw a headline about it. You saw here and there, but barely a headline. Are the bulls back in control? They sure are in industrial commodities, which remain very elevated. Get our 10-year bond. We're at 1.624%. So yields continue to remain elevated as well. So where does that leave us? Uh, gold is above $1,800. It seems like we're in a pretty sweet spot. I mean, in sentiment, there's a lot of concern we we're going to get a crash. We never got that. Particularly the technicals said that we would get a crash in many things, you know, in the S&P and in Bitcoin. And really everything seems to be kind of lining up for another leg higher. Really, the only thing that's going to bring this thing down is social unrest at this point. I think they just keep their show going until the people that aren't involved in assets have had enough. But to me, I mean, it's not funny, actually. Uh, but, you know, otherwise, I don't see why they just don't keep doing what they're doing. We're going to keep juicing the markets here forever until all of a sudden there's riots in the streets. Anyway, enough of that. Still in Athens here. Not as quite a nice of a view as last time, but we still have a nice little veranda here. So we're not complaining. We are still living the dream. And we have a great show lined up for you today. We have George Hemingway and he's back. He showed up at the Progressive Mind Forum two years ago, and now he's at the CMJ Reimagine Mining Symposium, and he gives a very interesting interview with Robert Seagraves, the publisher of the Canadian Mining Journal. Yeah, I mean, it talks kind of like all the big picture issues, and, you know, that big theme that you do tend to hear over and over at mining conferences, which is this idea of the mining industry needed to rebrand itself, and what I liked about the interview is Robert asked not just for diagnoses to the problem, but he asked, what is the solution? What do we do as a mining industry? And it was very interesting because George's response was, we need to get away from the we and get closer to the you and I. And what is my purpose? And how, how do I see myself helping the world? So kind of a very big picture view of the mining industry, but he also had a lot of interesting things to say about recruitment, which as we can see is becoming an ongoing issue. I'd call it one of the major themes right now in the mining narrative. Recruitment is a really big deal. It was hard to begin with. And now post-pandemic, I mean, there is a new mindset out there. And as George says in the interview, people have had time to reassess and they are really reconsidering. Probably every one of you who is listening to this has had these thoughts. Everyone is reconsidering. So all very interesting. And, you know, as he says, that makes it just that much harder if you are in a industry that has some controversy around it, or as he would say, is maybe not as trusted as other industries, fairly or unfairly from a perception perspective, that there will be a greater challenge for people in this industry. So back to the why that we are all here. And, you know, as he was saying with the coal industry, you know, a great example, the coal industry needs to brand itself as we're the ones helping keep you warm. We're powering your lives. It's pretty prescient right now here. I'm in Europe where there are great concerns. I mean, I've heard the natural gas prices in Europe have 5X. I mean, and this isn't crypto. This isn't crypto and it's 5X. So, you know, the only thing that looks like crypto in the traditional markets is like these industrial commodities. And they don't quite look like it, but they're approaching it. And it's pretty impressive, some of these runs that they've gone on. And like on the crypto front, like I saw an interview with Kevin O'Leary. He was on the Pomp podcast. What was astonishing about that interview was all the money that's still on the sidelines. That's just waiting to get in for whatever regulatory reasons. And if Kevin O'Leary is right. This thing in the digital asset space could get crazy. I mean, again, you tend to say stuff like this right before things crash 30%, but, uh, you know, it's a historic time is what this feels like to me. And the reason I mentioned Kevin O'Leary, because this is not your typical crypto influencer, right? So all to say, we have a very interesting situation because I go to myself and I've taken a lot of flack for this. As you may remember, I tell people I'm 98% in crypto. 
my kind of crazy scenario, it's almost science fiction because it sounds too wild to be true. But why does anybody stay in the bond market anymore? Uh, it seems to be just regulatory uncertainty. Otherwise, why aren't you getting your 7% in, on your USDC? I digress. We have a great show. We also have Larry Page and Rob McDonald from Southern Silver, and they're in our CEO spotlight coming right up. And it sounds like they have actually a pretty nice property that they're going on. Larry has been in the industry, as he says, for 50 years. So uh, interesting one if you're looking for those juniors. So great show lined up. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. And on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to our CEO Spotlight with Larry Page and Rob McDonald. So joining me for today's CEO Spotlight, we have... Larry Page from Southern Silver Exploration Corporation. He is the CEO and president. And we also have Rob McDonald, who is vice president of exploration. And they're here to tell us about the Cerro Las Minitas project. And it is a silver lead zinc project in Durango, Mexico. Rob and Larry, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, what I'd like to do in the uh, time I've got allotted is just give you a bit of background, flesh out why. Uh, one of the many uh, penny dreadfuls that is, is listed on the exchange has the capability and the desire and the asset to develop into a major mining company. Whether it does that on its own or it does that in partnership with an established miner is a decision that's going to be made in the next six months or so because we are at the stage where we have over the last 12 years, I've taken a raw prospect and turned it into a largest silver property in the world. And uh, Rob McDonald, who's also going to speak here, the, uh, the man who knows all of the statistics of the company, will tell you a little bit about uh, who our peers are and, uh, and where we rank. It's probably useful to go down memory lane here a little bit and look at some history. Uh, the Southern Silver Company is one of four companies that's managed in Vancouver by the Mannix Resource Group, which is simply a private company which manages all of the business of public companies on a cost-efficient basis. About 10-12 years ago, we had a big win in the group with Western Silver, which was developing uh, the Penasquito property in Zacatecas, Mexico. Listeners may well be aware that that is one of the major mines that uh, Gold Corp developed. The takeout was $1.2 billion. So the shareholders went from uh, pennies to $36, $37 on uh, their exit. We wanted to emulate that uh, success by using the same uh, infrastructure, the same human resources. We uh, went to Mexico, found a property that had the capability of becoming a mine. It uh, was a series of fractured artisanal uh, mining claims that a Mexican national had put together. Anyways, to summarize matters, we bought the property for $4 million. We had Freeport McMoran as a partner. They put up $5 million to help us and ran the drill program for a while looking for a deep-seated porphyry. When they left, the uh, Electrum Group from New York and Denver became a shareholder. They hold about 24% of our issued capital now, having participated in a number of equity raises. And they earned into the property as to 60% interest by uh, putting $5 million into the project. Last year, we came to terms that uh, we wanted to move faster than Electrum did. It was busy with uh, bringing a mine into production in Chihuahua, the Gatos property. And so we bought its 60% interest for $15 million. We were able to raise that money and more uh, in the market. And uh, we completed the purchase. We now own 100% of the property and uh, there are no burdens on it. We're well-placed now uh, to 
talk about the expansion in the resource. Rob McDonald is going to tell you about what the published resource was as of 2019 and what he's done since and what we're going to publish within the next few days as to what the expanded resource is. The next step on that, of course, is to uh, take it to a third party. In this case, we'll use M3 out of Tucson to do a PEA. So these are all the building blocks that make us attractive to majors so that they can make their own decision as to participation, uh, whether by joint venture or by takeout or by uh, any other corporate uh, arrangement that uh, is beneficial to our shareholders. So having said that, maybe Rob, you can tell the folks a bit about the property and uh, its asset uh, based and uh, I'll turn the uh, conversation over to you. Thank you. Hey, thank you very much, Larry. And uh, thank you all out there for uh, for joining us on this podcast. Uh, so as Larry said, uh, the, the flagship asset of Southern Silver Exploration Corp is the Sierra Las Minitas Silver Lead Zinc Scarn Project in Durango, Mexico. It's currently one of the largest and highest grade undeveloped projects, silver-based projects in the world with indicated and inferred resources totaling 272 million silver equivalent ounces at a relatively high grade of 354 grams per ton silver equivalent. It's well located in an established silver mining district. It's in a safe jurisdiction with easy access and easy logistics. Over the last year, since September 2020, we've been back on the ground and exploring. We've completed over 22,000 meters of drilling, predominantly on the east side of the Cerro, where uh, previously we had some indications of mineralization, but there were no mineral resources previously identified. We've completed that round of drilling now. We're working with the resource modelers, and in the coming days, we will have a resource update for the project where we are aiming to increase, potentially increase the deposit size by about 30%. So again, a substantial increase in the mineral resource base of this project. We continue to do metallurgical and engineering test work, and we'll continue to do those through the fall and into the winter of 2022. And we'll bring all of that together, the updated resource and the new metallurgical and engineering test work into, wrap that into a PEA pending late first quarter 2022. We also have some greenfields exploration going on on another part of the of the larger CLM property, as well as a second property, some uh, some exploration pending on a second property, our Oro property in southern New Mexico. So what we're looking at for the next six to nine months is a fairly continuous series of of catalysts and news flow events. And so we invite you to stay tuned and uh, follow us. And, uh, and maybe come in and support us as we uh, continue on our journey developing the Sierra Las Manitas project. Excellent. So it says here that this is a silver lead zinc project. How much of this is zinc? Because I mean, zinc is doing fairly well right now. Uh, we track it on the program here. How much zinc is there there? Is it, what's the ratio? Like, is it a large part of your economic plan here? Uh, well, uh, it, it is a substantial component. In terms of the full resource, the 2019 resource, maybe about 40% of that is the value is in the silver and about 60% or just under 60% value is in the lead and the zinc. And in terms of the actual zinc content, we have about 1.6 billion pounds of contained uh, zinc in both the indicated uh, or in the inferred and uh, indicated categories. So it is quite substantial. So do you consider yourself a silver company or more, I guess, like a polymetallic company? Or how would you frame that? It really is a polymetallic company. Uh, we do get, uh, I think, a substantial upside from the, uh, from the silver. And uh, in terms of the concentrates that we'll produce, it's a, it's a sulfide resource. So we will be producing concentrates through standard flotation methods. The highest paying one is our lead concentrate, which contains most of the silver. So we're we're getting, you know, a, a good payday from the silver. You know, we are getting high grade silver throughout much of the deposit. And so we do sort of, it is polymetallic, but we do call ourselves Southern Silver. And uh, just on the uh, security question, because some people do wonder about Mexico, 
you know, you hear stories and, and Rob was saying how this is a fairly safe jurisdiction. Could you talk about that? I don't know, Rob uh, or Larry, whoever wants to take that. Well, uh, the, the project is located in the heart of the Faja de Plata or Belt of Silver of north central Mexico. We're right on the edge of the Altiplano, which is the interior plateau of Mexico. And so we're not in the mountains. We're out in the plains. And as I like to joke, we're out in the middle of the bean fields, not the marijuana fields. So we're, we're ent- entirely out of the way of the narcos. We're located just 70 kilometers from the city of Durango. We have the uh, autopista uh, between Durango and Torreon. It runs right through the property, literally a few hundred meters from where we are currently drilling uh, on, the, um, on the Cerro Las Manitas project. So yes, uh, it's very safe. We have a, an excellent working relationship with the local ejido, the local populations. And it's a fantastic place to work. I've been traveling in and out of that property for the last decade, and I've never had to have security. Okay, so wrapping up then, what can we expect in the coming uh, weeks and months and years? Uh, What's the roadmap here? Corporately, Southern Silver is well positioned to fund the continuation of its uh, development of the Sarah Last Minitas project as well as to fund the exploration of its uh, New Mexican property, which is not uh, to say that it's a poor relative. It stands on its own, and we think we're going to have good news flow. I've been in this business for some 50 years, and I know that the shareholders don't want a company to be static. They want it to be developing and to roll the dice to see whether the, uh, the value is there in the properties, and that's what we're doing. So. We're going to be able to prove the worth of this property within the next six months through uh, independent means while we're in the midst of doing other exploration. We, uh, as I say, we're well-funded. We have a number of warrants that are uh, in the money, and uh, so it's helping us uh, with with the cash flow. So shareholders are in for a good ride. I'm one of them, and I'm excited. I think that... uh, This is going to be the next, uh, for instance, Western Silver. And the big boys are uh, in our data room. They're looking at the material. And uh, so there's exciting times ahead for the company in the near term. Okay, excellent. Larry Page, CEO and President of Southern Silver Exploration, and Rob McDonald, Vice President of Exploration. Thank you for joining us on our CEO Spotlight today. Our pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to us. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And turning to the website, we have a very interesting story by Cecilia Jamazmi on this lithium supply gap. And it says here, Rio Tinto has joined the rising chorus of companies and analysts warning of an imminent and significant supply gap for lithium as demand for the metal used in electric vehicles and green technologies continues to soar. The world's second largest miner which green-lighted in July the $2.4 billion Jadar lithium project in Serbia, believes the supply gap needs to be addressed within the next 10 years. In a presentation to investors, Rio Tinto's head of economics, Vivek Tulpule, said EV sales are on track to hit up to 65 million units, or about 55% of the world's total light vehicle sales, as early as 2030. You know, 55% almost sounds too low, but... I don't know anything about these things. Uh, This means manufacturers will need about 3 million tons of lithium compared with the roughly 350,000 tons they consume today. I mean, 55%. I I thought I saw a story that Hertz is going like 100% electric, which is, I thought, a brilliant move because everybody's going to want to rent a Hertz after that. So, I mean, 55% of in 2030 seems kind of like low-balling it. Continuing on, this means manufacturers will need about 3 million tons of lithium compared to the roughly 350,000 tons they consume today. Existing operations and projects combined are slated to contribute 1 million tons of lithium. Rio Tinto estimates that committed supply and capacity extensions will contribute about 15% to demand growth over the 2020 to 2050 period. The remaining 85% would need to come from new projects. 85%. And that's if only 55% of the world's total light vehicles our EVs by 2030. So lithium continues to be interesting. As he says, quote, filling the supply gap will require over 60 JADAR projects. 
And that is news from the second world's biggest miner. So that is in Serbia. And we have another story happening in Serbia. So, you know, Serbia, you don't really think of as a mining country that often. But now Zijin Mining, China's largest gold miner, has begun operations at its Kukaru Peki Copper and Gold Mine in Serbia. The asset, part of the Timok project, is expected to make the Balkan country Europe's second largest copper producer. And this story is also by Cecilia Jamazmi. And it says here, Zijin has poured $474 million to date into the new underground mine, which is slated to have annual capacity of 3.3 million tons of ore. And their plan is, quote, the first part of the project involves mining an ultra-high-grade ore body. It is expected to produce 50,000 tons of copper and three tons of gold in 2021, end quote. And it says here, Kukara Peki was originally slated to begin production in the summer of 2021 with an initial average output of 91,000 tons a year and annual gold production of about 200,000 ounces. It is now expected to increase output incrementally until it reaches a peak of 135,000 tons of copper per year, so about a 50% jump. Serbia's government anticipates the country's mining sector will start generating between 4% and 5% of its total GDP in less than 10 years, a significant increase from its current 2%. Yeah, I don't think they're going to have problems getting rid of this stuff. I think uh, Europe will be more than happy to buy the lithium and the metal from Serbia. Continuing on, the battle for Noront resources continues. BHP has replied to Wailu Resources' bid. So we kind of thought that might have been over, but it looks like it continues. This is also by Cecilia Jamazmi. BHP has sweetened its all-cash bid for Noront Resources. The world's largest miner is now offering $419 million Canadian, or $0.75 cents per share for the Canadian company, representing a 36% premium to its previous offer and a 7% premium to rival Wailu Metals' offer. And we have a quote from Noront saying, quote, Noront supports BHP's improved offer and recommends shareholders tender now to receive the cash consideration offered. Shareholders have until 11.59 on November 9th, Toronto time, to accept BHP's fresh bid, which does not require Wailu's support to be successful. Australian mining billionaire Andrew Forrest Wailu said on October 18th that it, quote, did not intend to support any alternate offers for the takeover target. Now, I think what's going on there is... Wailu is a big shareholder in Noront, so they said on October 18th that they do not intend to support any alternate offers for a takeover. So this isn't over. November 9th is a new deadline. Noront's Eagle's Nest nickel and copper deposit is located in northern Ontario's Ring of Fire. The asset has been billed by Wailu as the largest high-grade nickel discovery in Canada since the Voises Bay nickel find in the eastern province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And it's going for, okay, $419 million Canadian, or we have the U.S. here, $339 million for the largest high-grade nickel discovery in Canada since Voises Bay. Like, no wonder these guys are battling it out. It's just a surprise that there's not more people battling it out for. They have more than doubled the original offer, which is pretty outrageous, that original offer. Again, we are only at $339 million for that. And as we will see in nickel prices, nickel continues to soar higher. Frankly, if I was the shareholders, I would be kind of holding out. I would just wait. It'll be interesting to see if Wailu bids again. I I don't see why they wouldn't unless they're short on cash, which nobody seems to be short on cash these days, unless those with assets. So the story continues over there. Uh, B2Gold is selling its Burkina Faso project called Kiaka to West African Resources. And this is by Northern Miner staff. B2 Gold is selling its 81% stake in the Kiaka Gold project in Burkina Faso to Australia's West African Resources for cash and shares. Now, West Africa is a hot area for mining, but it's also a very hot area geopolitically. There's always a security question going on in countries like Mali, Burkina Faso. So the reason I mention that is because I see Australia has probably very wisely called themselves West African Resources. They probably don't want to call themselves Australian Gold Miners Inc. in West Africa. So they are calling themselves West Africa Resources. It says here, 
that Kiak is within 40 kilometers of their Sombrato gold mine, West African Resources Sombrato gold mine, which poured its first gold in March 2020. So maybe some synchronicities, is that what they call them? And we have a quote from Craig Stanley of Raymond James, who said in a research note, quote, West Africa continues to be a hotbed of M&A. In less than three years, we count eight producers slash mines and 10 pre-production companies slash projects that have been acquired in the region. Stanley, a mining analyst who covers Orzon Gold, also noted that Kiaka is 50 kilometers south of Orzon's Bomberi Gold Project. So in May, B2 Gold said it was updating Kiaka's existing feasibility study due to the potential for improved economics resulting from lower fuel prices, alternative power options, and a higher gold price. And it said it expected to complete the updated feasibility study by mid-2021. In a corporate presentation in September, B2 Gold said that it was continuing to, quote, review optimization opportunities and ways to unlock the value of the project for its shareholders, end quote. Under the sales agreement for Kiaka with West African Resources, B2 Gold will receive $450,000 in cash. And once the transaction closes, a further $45 million, 50% in cash and 50% in shares of West African Resources. Another $45 million will be due in cash or shares on either the commencement of the project construction or the completion of a feasibility study. In addition, a 2.7% net smelter return royalty will be due on the first 2.5 million ounces of gold produced from Kiaka and a half a percent NSR on the next 1.5 million ounces produced. So B2 Gold has taken its pound of flesh. So very interesting. It sounds like a great project, but yeah, it's a tricky area from a security perspective. Every six months or so, we get a story in that region. So you wonder how much security may have had to do with it, but who knows? And a couple of more stories. We have an interesting Barrick Gold story that says their Pueblo Viejo mine may need to be halted, also by Cecilia Jamasmi. Barrick Gold, the world's second largest producer of the precious metal, warns that mining at its Pueblo Viejo operation in the Dominican Republic could finish this year if a new tailing storage facility doesn't get approved. Mining at Pueblo Viejo, a 60-40 joint venture with Newmont, depends on the possibility of building a new tailing storage facility. The mine waste depository is part of a planned $1.3 billion expansion. It will also enable the mining of lower grades in the existing deposit, supporting annual output of more than 800,000 ounces of gold. So not a small mine here. Pretty significant. And we have a quote from Mark Bristow, Barrick's president and CEO, Quote, the extension of its life means that it could continue to be a major creator of value for the Dominican Republic and its people far into the future. End quote. He noted that the mine had paid $522 million in direct and indirect taxes so far this year, which brings its total tax payments since it went into commercial production in 2013 to just under $3 billion. Sounds like there's a bit of environmental and aid group opposition. In May, 87 environmental and aid groups signed a letter opposing the expansion and construction of the related tailings dam, citing risks posed by increased mine waste and threats to local community rights. George Hemingway talks about tailings dams, so very interesting in that context. The company agreed in August to independent environmental studies led by the government of the Dominican Republic for the expansion. So interesting news out of the Dominican Republic. One more story here for the uranium bulls out there. Denizen is going to sell its GovX shares and warrants. So just an interesting little note on the uranium sector. This is by Northern Miner staff. Denizen Mines is selling 32.5 million common shares it holds in GovX Uranium at 48 cents per share to one of the junior explorer's larger institutional shareholders for proceeds of $15.6 million. Now, I think GovX, a couple of years ago, I remember looking, and it was at 13 cents. So they have probably multiplied on their money or have finally got it back after a few years. Under the private sales agreement with the unnamed institutional shareholder, Denizen will also grant 32.5 million common share purchase warrants, entitling the buyer to acquire one additional common share of GovX at a price of 80 cents over an 18-month period. If the GovX warrants are exercised, Denizen will receive a further $26 million and transfer the remaining 32.5 million shares to the warrant holder. As well, Denizen's CEO, David Cates, will remain on GovX's board of directors. So it all stays in the family. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices.
turning to metal prices, the 10-year bond is at 1.62%. That is up 0.003%. So it continues to remain in these upper levels. And we turn over to our metals, and we like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And gold is back above $1,800 at $1,802.96 per ounce. Silver is at $24.34 per ounce. That is 61 cents higher than last week. Platinum is at $1,053.97. That is 33 cents higher than last week. Platinum is at $1,053.97 per ounce. That is 33 cents higher than last week, so basically unchanged. And palladium is at $2,046.20 per ounce. That is $34 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is at $4.56 per pound. That is $0.23 cents lower than last week, but definitely up compared to where we've been. Aluminum is at $1.37 per pound. That is $0.06 cents lower than last week. Lead is a penny higher at $1.10 per pound. And nickel is $0.30 cents higher at $9.31 per pound. And from us recording these prices here, that is an all-time high. So again, think of that in the context of our BHP Wailu Norant Resources story. And they're only paying $339 million for the second biggest nickel mine. Again, like I think when I first saw that story, I was like, where like is the government aware of this? That they want to sell off the second biggest nickel find in Canada for $330 million? But I digress. Okay, 10. Unchanged at $17.67 per pound. And cobalt is at $25.45 per pound. That is two cents higher. And zinc remains very elevated at $1.63 per pound, although down nine cents on the week. What do we see here? You know what I see in these industrial metals is consolidation of these massive gains. They have broken out and now they're consolidating these massive gains. It was a big breakout. So very interesting over there and even the precious metals gold and silver starting to perk up a bit gold showing a little bit of spirit being back above eighteen hundred dollars and silver coming along for the ride and those are your metal prices and coming up we have stratalis's george hemingway at the cmj reimagine mining symposium and george hemingway is strategy and innovation executive and he is a columnist and a keynote speaker and he is in conversation with Robert Seagraves, publisher of the Canadian Mining Journal. Robert goes deep into George's bio, so I will let him take care of it. Uh, but all to say, George has been at the Progressive Mining Forum before, and he de delivered a very interesting speech on trust that I still remember quite well, just saying something two years later. So I hope you like the interview. I think Robert did a great job, and we will see you on the other side. to join us is George Hemingway, who I did personally ask to sort of come and present again at our symposium. He had uh, been the lead speaker two years at the Progressive Mind Forum. I love the way he thinks and the way he presents his ideas. Uh, he is the managing partner and leads the innovation practice at Stratalis, uh, where he advises leaders of companies and organizations and countries on the future and how to succeed. He is considered a leading futurist in the mining industry, and he has advised many of the world's uh, leading companies such as Valet, Anglo-American, BHP, um, on how they can best pivot and transform the company to succeed. Uh, and in addition to the corporate boards, he is very passionate about supporting the next generation of leaders. He is a board member to the Chamber Orchestra of New York, uh, the Moonmark Aerospace, and the Lausanne Institute of Mining at the University of Toronto. He holds an MBA from Columbia University, uh, from Columbia Business School, and a BS from the Stern School of Business at New York University. Uh, please welcome George Hemingway. And right off the bat, I do want to ask you, uh, you do focus on uncertainty for a living, and it has been a crazy year and a half. It, it, has, it has been a crazy year. Thanks for having me, Robert. And uh, thanks again, everyone, for, uh, for being here today. I mean, it's, it's been a nutty year, um, and it, it doesn't seem, nutty couple of years, doesn't seem to be changing very much. And, and what I think is interesting about it is just how resilient we are. I mean, if you think about it, a year ago, folks were still hunkered down. We were wondering if we were ever going to get out of this. And now, even though we've got variants, 
and uh, you know, people are still getting infected and so on. I think a lot of people, maybe the majority, um, at least that I know, um, have moved on in their own way. Uh, and now for at least a, a lot of folks, uh, conversations back to normal stuff, politics, uh, the economy, who's going to trigger recession first, the US, China, um, how do we keep people from leaving and, and retain talent? And um, the last time I spoke at one of your events, I think about two years ago, I, I you know, talking about uncertainty, I said that in times of great uncertainty, people tend to do one of two things. They either tend to hunker down and gravitate to the stuff that that's familiar to them, right? Tradition, uh, religion, uh, family, uh, or they tend to rise up and rally up against something, uh, fight some kind of injustice, do something with their pent up uncertainty and energy. And I think we saw that, right? Whether it was Black Lives Matter or people storming the Capitol here in the U.S. or, you know, uh, higher taxes on rich people or, or going up against certain industries. I think we're seeing some of that come into play in the last couple of years. And it's going to impact big business. It's going to impact mining in a really large way. Um, you know, we do a lot of work outside of mining as well. So if you look at other industries, look at aviation, for example, they're under fire. They don't even know it, right? It started a couple of years ago with Boeing, the 737 MAX. We had a couple of crashes, COVID came, we didn't realize we had to fly so much. Then on the social front, they're a huge producer of GHGs, they're under fire for that, which isn't helped by, you know, a bunch of billionaires going off into space, <laughs> uh, you know, and then right now you've got, you know, pilots not taking vaccines and, and, and all that stuff, but, but it's a mature industry, right? And like mining, it's coming under a lot of social pressure, GHGs, people protesting, people inside the industry kind of resisting and clinging on to the past. And I think it's going to all end up uh, leading to some problems down the line very soon. And, you know, another example of that, I think, would be Facebook, right? And they've had a no good, terrible week, month, year, maybe it'll be a decade. And, and, and that's something I think that the, the mining industry and other industries as well, but we're talking about mining today should be grateful for because mining in a sense is lucky that uh, it's taken what I think is a temporary backseat to other industries as a target. And on a positive note, I think a lot of the big mining companies, and I'll speak you know more broadly, are Canadian mining companies, Australian mining companies as well, but Canadians in particular, I think are trying, you know, don't seem to be squandering uh, the opportunity uh, to change and to do something with that. But what is really certain, uh, no matter how you cut it, is that society is unhappy. And I think that deep down, people are feeling very uncertain, more uncertain than they ever have perhaps in their lives. And for them, something is missing. And while for the last few years, we've had plenty of people to sort of target, whether it was Trump or Bolsonaro or COVID or pandemics or, 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 or you know, murder hornets, the world is still looking for answers and scapegoats. And it will eventually find them. And big businesses like banking, like pharmaceuticals, like aviation, um, like natural resources, I think are still very much in the crosshairs. Um, so what would you say would be the greatest challenge you face in the mining industry today with, with all this flying around? So uh, a few years ago, uh, about two years ago, we, we came out with a, a study, a global mining study, Stratalis did, on you know, what were the top three uncertainties. We called it the CEO's agenda. There were three big takeaways. The third one, uh, I have to say COVID, by the way, was not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think they're, I think they're still very true in, in determining, you know, who will be the winners and the losers. Uh, so the third one was that mining companies really need to figure out how to implement the new digital, right? If the old digital was dealing with all the noise and it was a lot of show and, and a lot of theater, the new digital is actually getting, getting stuff done. I think that's a challenge for a lot of folks. The second was that talent matters and that recruiting and retaining people was going to become more and more difficult. I think that's incredibly true. And I don't know a single CEO that we work with that doesn't list that as one of their top challenges right now. But the third one, and I think it, it's probably the one, or the first one, I'm sorry, and, and I think it's probably the one that's most important, I think, for our talk today as well, was trust. And that trust is the new competitive advantage. And that for mining companies, the rules of the game, the things that matter to investors, to society, to the public have changed. And I think that message matters more now than it did um, even two years ago. I do think there's a bit of a, a challenge with the question itself. Uh, you asked um, about the mining industry, the greatest challenge facing the mining industry. I'm not 100% sure that there is a single mining industry to, to ask about, right? O oil sands and diamonds have precious little in common. Uh, I think the same goes for potash and lithium. Um, it's a fact that the actions of the big base metal miners intentionally don't mirror those of, of thermal coal. 
people in gold play an entirely different game uh, altogether. Mm -hmm. And the only real connection, right, is that we all take stuff out of the ground and that society tends to lump us together. But it is exceedingly hard for the industry to speak with a single voice. Uh, and it's even harder to do so to build trust as a single unit, uh, especially because the strategy, and I think it's a good strategy uh, for any one company, is to differentiate yourself by drawing a thin green line between you and the rest of the industry. And so because of that, I think the mining industry and any one mining company faces the potential for a Facebook problem, right? A, a couple of weeks ago, Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, they were knocked offline for like six hours. The next day, a whistleblower told Congress, it's a terrible, evil place. It's ruining children. <laughs> children, it's endangering democracy. Maybe it's better that it just stays offline and never comes back. Oh, but, but that kind of stuff impacts reputation. It impacts your ability to recruit. It impacts your ability to insulate yourself against uncertainty and, and things that happen out of the blue. And when you look at Facebook, and I think you look at mining as well, you have to ask yourself the question, does society hate Facebook? Or do we just hate the internet and the ugliness about it? Do parts of society really hate mining or do they just hate the coal companies? Or do they just hate like a bad actor? And if you're Facebook, you don't get the luxury of separating yourself from Amazon and the other tech companies. If you're an upstanding miner, you don't have the luxury of separating yourself from coal companies. Not that the coal companies aren't upstanding. Understand it's a perception thing. Yeah. You just have to make sure that the rising tide carries all ships. And, and the challenge is that without some kind of enhancements of trust, some kind of warm, cozy trust quilt that, that the, the industry can put around itself to protect itself uh, in the case of in, uh, some sort of uncertainty, you're not really insulated. And so the big question, I think, is how do you build trust in a world that is increasingly focused on canceling anything it doesn't like? And I think that's a challenge for mining companies. Would you say mining is like Facebook or could you actually cancel mining? Could you cancel mining? I'm, I'm, yeah. I, um, I'm going to go with the groupthink on this one <laughs> as much as I like to go against groupthink and agree that um, you can't cancel mining, at least not yet. Uh, but you can cancel miners, right? And, and you can make it a pretty unpleasant place uh, to work um, mm -hmm. and to make money. So, you know, as with the mining industry, right? Yes, you can cancel Facebook, right? Facebook has a lot protecting it. We use it. Politicians can't, you know, get their own wardrobes put together by themselves, let alone coordinate taking down an industry or the internet. Uh, the government's antitrust case is absolutely, you know, loose. Investors keep buying the stock. I think it's up like 20 or 30% this year. And uh, unlike mining, we don't really need Facebook but then we don't really need any one mining company either. So in that way, like the mining industry, Facebook is lucky for now, right? It went down, people ran around in a panic and then promptly went to Twitter to tell everyone that Instagram was down because it was like so important that the internet is breaking, which it seems to be doing a lot of right now. But the, the loss of trust matters. You know, Cambridge Analytica started it. And the thing is that Facebook as a business needs to transform and grow, just like the mining companies do. They need to buy new companies, and it's going to get harder and harder to obtain permission to do that from the government, just like it's going to be harder and harder to obtain mining licenses if you don't have uh, the social license, if you have a trust issue. And I mean, to that end, I think mining and, and frankly, the rest of the world are going to have a bit of a, they have a bit of, we kind of face a bit of a China problem right now, which is a big statement, right? I could be talking about Evergrande, I could be talking about... <laughs> Taipei, I could be talking about war, I could be talking about, you know, supply chain issues. But what I really mean is China is trying to grow and transform over the next few decades um, and still manage decarbonization, just like mining companies are, community, indigenous rights, water stewardship, biodiversity. And it's just not, I, I just don't think it's balanceable right now. Mining is at the forefront of supplying the commodities the world is going to need in order to transform, in order to try and become a more GHG neutral world. The population is continuing to grow. We're looking to innovate. It's going to need a lot of minerals, a lot of minerals. And I think it's going to come at us fast, even faster than it's coming. And the industry, its operating platform, its ability to gather the right capex, the technology it needs, right? BEVs, we were just listening to the last guy, right? Ready to go. But, you know, there's more than that. The system that puts it together, the, the machine learning, the biochar, the echo shipping won't be able to transform as quickly as demand is going to rise. And I think the industry is going to have to make some hard choices between upping production, capex, meeting profitability targets, and transforming at the same time. I think it's going to struggle to do all three in the time horizon that it set for itself. And I think we're seeing signaling already 
from the Rios and the BHPs of the world. And if society doesn't believe in a purpose, it doesn't understand how we're all interconnected, how mining matters to the global success, I think it risks being derailed. And there isn't a Twitter to back us up, mm-hmm. right? When, when mining goes down, but no one's looking that, that far down the path yet. Is there any one thing you think that is going to impact the industry next? One specific thing? Did I mention trust? But, but getting more specific, I think the big showstoppers that, that eventually will impact things like trust always hit us by surprise, right? And they, they keep changing. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, people as a whole tend, tend to underestimate how quickly any one technology or transformative thing will happen and overestimate how long it takes to make an impact. That's why we've been talking about electric cars for like, you know, decades, right? They took forever to come to market, but boom, now they're here overnight. And I think 10 years ago, the buzz was all around mechanization, automation, artificial intelligence, and that labor would protest, right? That, that people would fight jobs. Robots are coming for our jobs. It hasn't happened yet because we underestimated the time it would take, but now it's coming and, and, and very few people are paying attention. So while people look at the obvious stuff, a tailings dam or two falls. Um, and while I think it's a fool's game to, to make predictions, since you asked, I, I don't think it's going to be GHGs. I, I think that's already being looked at sufficiently well. So I'm going to gamble on the next tailings being water because water is still being treated mostly as a tactical problem. I think even by those that are pushing water stewardship, it's in little pockets. Like BHP, for example, a couple of people, a couple of groups very passionate about it, pushing water stewardship. Uh, the Lassonde Institute of Mining at the University of Toronto has a water stewardship innovation project. Uh, but again, it's pockets of it. And, and you see glimmers of this already in mining. You have for years, right? Water is sacred to First Nations communities. Mining license doesn't happen. Uh, it's an issue in Chile. It's an issue in South America. Here in the U.S., the Colorado River is drying up. And we all went in a tizzy, right? So I, th- I think, though, a good impact to the water table, a good drought. And at a general level, this is going to matter more than it more. Than than it does today. So when it does happen, if it happens, but when it happens, whatever this thing may be, what's your buffer zone? And I think that the, as an industry, whatever currency of trust you've built up in your bank, that's the buffer that, that you're going to need and, and which doesn't necessarily exist today. So does this thinking apply to all miners? As you said, there isn't just one mine. Yeah, I think so. I, I would seem, I mean, I think miners face different pressures than others, right? Now, the sort of mining that the world wants uh, I think is a different question, as is the sort of mining that, you know, investors are willing to invest in. I mean, there are the obvious metals that everybody talks about, right? Let's all say it together. It's copper, nickel, lithium, rare earth minerals. Those are the ones we like to think we need. So I think while it isn't being done effectively to the average Jane or the average Joe, it's easier to make an argument that as with semiconductor shortages and frankly, the global supply chain in general, certain things, certain parts of ma- mining matter more to your everyday life. Like um, today, the White House said, right, that uh, you should buy your, your Christmas stuff early. Uh, shelves are going to be emptier than you're used to. Kellogg's is facing a cereal shortage, you know, and because of this, right, uh, these are things that people matter. They, they, they matter to them. It, it has a, a real connection. They resonate. So, I mean, have the folks that say Resolution Copper made an argument to my dad that, that, that you know, his electric car is going to need them in 2035. Uh, no, but if they tried, I think it's less of a stretch because it connects to people in a personal way. I think at an individual corporate or a sub-segment level, generalities, generalities really aren't enough. So you take something that's a little less popular, but keenly in focus this week, right? Uh, we, we almost missed an energy crunch in North America. China's in the middle of one. Europe's having a field day trying to warm itself up because it now needs the industries it tried to kill and it didn't think far enough ahead. So if you're a coal miner out there, you might be tempted to take the money and run. I don't think you should, not all at first at least. What they need to do, and it speaks to the broader industries, they need to reframe around a deeper purpose, a more fundamental scope. What is, what, what is it that they do that really matters? They keep us warm. They, they power our lives. They have to remember that that's their long-term positioning. So what they need to do is extract subsidies from the Europeans in return for turning on the pipe so that they can reinvest in more alternative portfolios. Because this may not be the last time a crunch happens, but they aren't likely to happen very often for coal anymore. And you really shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste. So isn't the industry focused on improving this? Like we see the effort by the ICMM to create global standards uh, and the mining companies, especially the bigger ones, many of you've mentioned, touting the importance of metals to the transformation. Um, 
So where should we look for the answers? So, I mean, I, I think the things that, you know, ICMM, big mining companies do, I, I think are, they're doing things absolutely, right? But, um, but like I said before, I, I don't think that this is an advertising problem. I don't think the big mining companies are sitting back and waiting for the showstoppers to happen. I know they're not, right? I think the challenge is that, that it's more than just good messaging and advertising by big industry bodies. Let, let's be honest, that'll drive very slow change, I think, with regulators, with governments. It's good for recruiting, maybe. But I don't think it's going to move the needle quickly enough um, when it comes to trust. People don't trust industry bodies and corporations to tell them the truth. It's a flat out true. And even when they believe you, uh, it doesn't resonate in a way that I think is authentic and moving and matters. Um, I think that's going to take a different kind of movement. So you, you asked where we should look for answers, right? So I, I, think, I think the first challenge of that is, is to stop using the royal we. And it's not we. I, I think it's, it's, it's to more think about you and I. And what I mean is that the common and obvious answer to that question is to look at the companies that people talk about doing it well. The, the popular version of this, I think, is, is Tesla and Apple, right? They made something that was on the verge of being a commodity seem interesting, virtuous almost, as if they were doing something better for humanity and managed to insulate their brands at the same time. And I think these are two companies and industries that desperately need metals and mining more than anything else, right? These, these battery panels, these solar panels, these electric cars, these batteries, these rockets, they need that. And yet they're trying to draw a really thin green line between them and us. Uh, so much so that Apple went and invented a new kind of aluminum, right? Mm -hmm. And branded it differently. So I, I think what they're trying to do somewhat successfully is build goodwill and trust by broadcasting a, a higher purpose. Um, one that appeals to you and I on, on a personal level. And when it works, it works because they don't advocate for themselves. You do. I do. I mean, there is no greater advocate for Tesla or Apple than the general public. And I think that gets to the heart of it. If you want to build trust, you need to connect on a deeply personal level. And there's no way that an industry, this industry especially as a whole, is going to speak with one voice. Anyway, that's not really how authenticity is born. Purpose doesn't come from a company. It doesn't come from an industry. It comes from your heart. And I mean, mining is way more important than cars or cell phones, right? It's a core component of nearly everything that matters. It's like farming. It's like your health. If you're a farmer, uh, you know you don't just grow corn. You feed the world. What you do matters. If you work in medicine or pharmaceuticals, you don't just make pills. You don't just serve up drugs. You heal. And that purpose, that purpose extends to everyone in those industries, from the farmer to the person in accounting who pays the bills, to, 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 to the nurse, to the person in procurement that makes sure that there's syringes at the hospital. That's something that people genuinely carry with them when they go to work. They understand the importance of, of not, not what they do, but why they do it. And they understand why it's important to others. And so ironically, I think the place that, that we need to look is actually inside mining, probably one of the greatest sources of uncertainty and maybe one of the, the greatest eroders of trust in, in the recent future in, in mining industry, and that's tailings. We've done a lot of work in tailings in the last couple of years, helping companies think through their tech strategies and their roadmaps and their visions. And when you speak to the people that are in charge of tailings and, and managing and monitoring tailings, especially at these larger companies, you find something different, I think, than you necessarily would have noticed a few years back, if you paid attention at all. You find a deeper purpose, a passion, a knowledge that what they do matters. Their purpose, they save lives, they prevent failures, they stand guard. And these are folks that believe that what they do is more important than themselves, more important than a mining company's results. They have a duty to society. One that I think if push came to shove, a lot of them would stand up for, fight the tide and make sure that the right thing is done because they know they matter, because what they do matters, because they have a purpose. And that purpose, that commitment, you know, it breeds, it, it, it breeds trust, right? We, we trust people that are, that are committed that way. So I think the interesting question is, you know, the person behind the desk in procurement at a mining company, do they know why they matter to society? Do they have purpose? The person in digital, they're building an app to make sure that you know when the scoop shows up. They're about as far away from breaking a rock as you can get, right? Do they understand how what they do impacts the world in a better way? So I think that the, the key is not thinking about this industry we, again, but getting to that deeply personal you and I.
Look, it is all about a single person. And what yeah. could somebody in our industry do today, tomorrow, or the next week to help sort of show yeah. we have a purpose? Uh, so I, I don't think it's a universal truth. And, and maybe I, I sit from a, from a, uh, a bias uh, in, in where I sit and in, in where a lot of us sit in, in the world. But I think COVID has caused a lot of people to take a fresh look at why they do what they do and looking for meaning. Uh, you see it in people changing cities, changing jobs, right? The great migration, divorces, weddings. Uh, it's almost as if we're having a, a global uh, midlife crisis. And look, some of us are, are just here for a paycheck, right? As an industry. But chances are, if you ended up in the mining industry and you stayed, there was a reason. And you do have a connection to this industry, to the good you do, to the good it does, to the benefits you're giving to society. So I, I guess for a single person, I, I, I would say, and I think we can start here, right? I, I would ask everyone that's listening um, to pause for a minute. And ask yourself this question, what is my why? why? Why do I get up in the morning? Why do I work in mining? And I think more importantly, why does what I do matter to the grandmother down the street or the kids playing in the yard or a fisherman on the East Coast? I think there are a lot of whys in there, a lot of possible whys, but which one is yours? Which one is your why? And, and I think, which is the one that you would be most comfortable authentically saying to a total stranger who came up to you and asked you, why do you work in mining? I think if you can't find your why, I would urge you to keep asking. Ask your friends, ask your colleagues, ask why they do what they do and see if that resonates with you. And then go deeper, not just into what you do, but into how what you do help others. And I think this is the next really key point that we as an industry and the companies we work for need to figure out to make happen, then share it. Because that's how trust is built. Trust is built by sharing our deeper personal purposes with the world. And it's through these authentic, genuine personal stories, I think that change happens. That's the, that's the quilt we need. Each why that's told as a story makes up these, these portraits, right? And together, they help to increase the trust, reduce the uncertainty that the industry experiences. So I think that's the secret. We and the companies we work for and the people who make them up need to focus not just on the obvious, GHG reduction, tailings dams, storytelling to investors, cutting costs, but in getting our people and ourselves to define and deliver our personal purposes, I think, as advocates for ourselves and for the industry. And by doing so, it might be possible to build a quilt around the industry for when uncertainty and and challenges uh, occur. And if you're not in a mining company, but a supplier, or a consultant, to say so. <laughs> um, I, I think. I mean, I think. I think we're all part of one ecosystem, right? I think it applies across the board. For me, I think it's a bit of a Benjamin Franklin moment. Uh, sort of, we, we must all hang together, or or we will surely hang separately. I, I think again, back to Tesla, back to Apple, back to what makes the the farmer and the agricultural industry something that is difficult to cut. You know, when you, when you got you know, farming subsidies, you know, it's difficult to cut. When, when you're talking about healthcare, it's difficult to cut. Why? Uh, it's because the most powerful voices are those that come from the outside. And sometimes those that sit on the periphery, like suppliers, like consultants, because folks that do the non-traditional work within the industry or hold divergent views or supply the industry are the most powerful because they don't come from the center. Understanding what their purpose is and why they do what they do, I think, I think is incredibly important part of the equation. Now, it's a little harder to do because if you work for, I don't know, Sandvik a couple of minutes ago, right? Mm -hmm. If you work for Sandvik, right, understanding your why may, may be different than, than understanding Rio Tinto's why. But together, the things you do enable this magic, this mm -hmm. magic that, you know, sits in the cell phone. Um, and and, and that, that's, you know, you're part of that, part of that halo. And it's important to understand how you make people's lives better. So, so for me, more than ever, I think it's clear that it's not what we do, but why we do it that matters. And that the smallest voices unified behind a single message, you know, a, a message of trust that's made up of many, many individual messages of purpose uh, can build that protection that the industry needs to keep itself insulated in order to transform uh, in the most uncertain times. Yeah, thank you very much.
hope you enjoyed that. I thought a very interesting discussion just on our purpose in this industry. For those that are into the rare earth metals, do not forget we have a very special panel coming up at the next Global Mining Symposium in November, and it includes the CEO of Energy Fuels, Mark Chalmers, the CEO of Commerce, Chris Grove, and... Clint Cox, who is considered one of the main experts in the industry, they are all going to appear on a panel. If you want to sign up and even ask questions yourself, just go to events.northernminer.com. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. And until next week, take care.